Pie in the Sky Media. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals who were interviewed and do not represent those of the Murder Chronicles and Pie in the Sky Media. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Carolyn Osorio, and this is my new podcast, The Murder Chronicles. You're listening to episode 26, The Eye of the Storm. Recently, I was out to dinner with my family, and my nine-year-old son was opening up his fortune cookie at the end of the meal, and he read it out loud. A smooth sea never made a skillful mariner. Hmm. I was like, that's so true. And it struck me that it felt less like a fortune and more like an adage. And it sounded familiar, and so I looked it up, and actually the saying is attributed to Franklin D. Roosevelt. He used a line in a speech where he actually said, a smooth sea never made a skillful sailor. And Roosevelt would know, being afflicted with polio at a young age, he came from a wealthy family, but he certainly went through many struggles in his life and would actually credit having to deal with adversities like his physical condition related to polio that made him a better man. Because life is filled with ups and downs, but how you respond to getting knocked down by life, that really represents who we are. The struggle can either break us or make us the best versions of ourselves. And this really hit home because I had gotten this fortune the day after I'd interviewed Melinda, who is one of the most resilient, passionate, and brave people that I've ever met. And you're going to hear her story today. Okay, so if you want to just start off with your name and title, and we'll get started. Okay, my name is Melinda Elkins Dawson. And I am currently a public speaker and advocate. To say that Melinda has weathered a lot of storms in her life would be a gross understatement. But as we go through her story, which is raw, unbelievable, and tragic, but also redemptive. My mom was murdered and Burke said it looked like him. I was just lying and standing, taking up for my husband. Oh. It's so maddening to me. It's so maddening. Because she knew then knew the story about about what had happened to you and how you'd li- quote unquote lied. They viewed me as a liar, you know, even from the time I was seven, you know, till I'm 37. And when it came out that my niece said it looked like her Uncle Clarence that murdered my mother and attacked her, my six-year-old niece, the night of my mother's murder, I wasn't buying it. I was, my family knew that I was, rejecting that. And I was saying, no, Clarence did not do that. So they again, once, you know, they again viewed me as a liar, you might as well say. I want you to know that it's cathartic for her to be able to share her journey. I was taking up for my husband saying, no, he did not do this. Wow. I mean, this is such a, this is so cyclical and so important to the story. I I was just feeling bad because I do know what this is to dredge this up for you. And I, not to the, obviously the level that, um, 
I'm 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 sorry that you're having to revisit these things, but I appreciate you doing so for for me in the podcast. So thank you. Believe um, it or not, it's a healing process, and and to be able to talk about it brings up all those you know bad bad memories, but. I get it out, you know, it's not stuck in my head. So I, I really thank you for allowing me to tell my story. I, I'm getting really emotional too. I'm sorry. I just, it's, it's so hard for little kids who come forward and are not believed. And it has such a huge impact on the rest of their lives. Yes. And I just, I, it took so much courage for you to come forward and to have your family not believe you. And then to have this happen again, it's like traumatized over and over and over again. It's like ripping that scab off. Melinda's life is also a triumph of the human spirit when a person answers the call to do the impossible, which is why what she has to say now when it comes to courage and victim advocacy is so powerful. And I, and I always say that those years of of having to go through these uh, different tragedies and crises. And it really, it led me to be the person that I am today. And I think it also prepared me for what was coming um, because it seemed like I was able to handle these crises, you know, one after the other and still, <laughs> and still be able to function. But to know Melinda's story, you have to know that it really began before she was even born, with her parents, Judy and Homer, who yearned for a baby. Judy and Homer were a young couple living in Ohio in the 1960s, and Judy was devastated when she found out that she would never be able to conceive a child. Judy and Homer looked into legal adoption, but it was very expensive. But then they were hopeful. They heard whispers around the Goodyear plant where Judy's husband and father-in-law worked that there was a way to adopt a baby discreetly, with no questions asked, if you had the money. My dad and my mom's father both worked at Goodyear in Akron. And there was this two of these people that um, were putting out the word that there was a, a doctor in Georgia that if you wanted a baby, there was no questions asked. You just were put on a list. And when it was your time to get that baby, you would get a call and you pay your money and you come down and pay your money. And then your birth certificate for that baby will be sent to you um, in the, the parent's name that come down and paid the money. And it would look like the baby is actually your baby. Um, and there would be no, no additional records to, for anyone to go back on. There was one thing that was critical to acquiring the baby, $1,000. And in February 1963, Judy and Homer got the call to come get their new baby girl. They brought their $1,000, which in 1963 was equivalent to nearly $10,000. And they did what they were told. They got to the clinic in Georgia from Akron, Ohio, within 12 hours, handed over the money, signed the birth certificate, and got out of town as fast as possible. On February 15th, they got a, a, a call to come down and pick up their baby girl, which was me. Judy and Homer were over the moon. They brought their baby girl home. 
Melinda, and everyone was smitten. And they took me home and raised me as one of their own. And I've never, ever felt, and I'm sure a lot of children that are adopted, even later on in life, they, you know, that's their parents. That's, you can't tell a child that's been adopted, that is not your parent. That was my mom and my dad. But they didn't realize that their newborn was one of at least 200 babies that were illegally sold to couples in six states from 1951 to 1964. Melinda describes her early childhood as loving and supportive, surrounded by her mother and father and close relatives nearby. But Melinda's idyllic childhood was shattered when she was six years old and her parents divorced. My mom was very (laughs) funny, quirky at times, full of life. She just had problem with, with men choosing, you know, the right partner. I believe when my mom and dad were divorced, uh, that not, not only changed her life, but it also changed my life. And, you know, you hear this from children of, of divorces, but, you know, I felt like I lived a charmed life up until I was six years old and I never saw any problems with my mom and my dad. So can you tell I'm getting choked up? (laughs) Yeah, because it seemed like my dad was there one day and then he wasn't. I mean, that was the crux of it. After Judy and Homer split, she and her mother moved away. And it wasn't long before Judy was in a new relationship and remarried. My mom wanted to venture out, I think. And so we actually moved out of state away from my entire solid family. And I think she just um, wanted to spread her wings a little bit and felt confined. And and then choosing the wrong partner, you know, led to some very catastrophic things in her life and my life too. It was around this time that Judy told Melinda that she was adopted. And, you know, I found out very early on, I think I was seven, when my mom told me. And (laughs) so I had that on top of everything else that I had to, you know, function with. After Judy married her second husband, she was amazed when she discovered that she was pregnant. My mom always thought that she couldn't have children. And then when she divorced my dad and remarried someone else, then she became pregnant with her own child, which uh, produced my sister. So we are like 10 years difference. And, you know, when April came along, she was like my baby, too, because I helped take care of her. But even before April was born, Melinda, since the age of seven, had been carrying a dark secret. It festered inside of her, a burden she should have never had to bear. It involved her stepfather. Her second marriage, which produced my sister, that husband of hers did sexually abuse me and lied about it and got away with it. And um, I was seven the first time. April was not born yet. And then um, again, when I was 10 and April was uh, born, but just, you know, a baby. Melinda needed to tell someone that she trusted. And that person was her uncle, who was really only a couple years older than her. She swore him to secrecy before revealing that her stepfather had been sexually abusing her. She just couldn't hold it in any longer, despite her stepfather's manipulation that if she told anybody, she'd get into big trouble. 
my uncle, who was only about two and a half, three years older than me. So we were like brother and sister, you know. And after my grandparents uh, went to sleep, I whispered in his ear and I told him what was going on. And I asked him not to tell anybody because, you know, the whole every every time I would hear, you know, if you tell your mom, she's going to be really mad at you. And so um, I said, don't tell anybody. And as soon as I told him what what had happened, he ran straight into my grandparents' room and all hell broke loose. My grandmother drove me back down to Virginia the same the next day. And we met with the doctor and the police. And the doctor said, there's, you know, no evidence of anything sexual. But, you know, at the time I couldn't articulate exactly what this man had done. And it wasn't... How old were you? Seven. Okay. And so they all, I think they all thought that he had raped me and there was no physical evidence of that. So therefore, no one believed me. I just made the story up. Yeah. And he denied it. Yeah. Did your mom believe you? No. That's why I said I had to live three additional years with him after that. Did she ever believe you as, you know, once she, that her relationship soured and... Um, yes. Yes, she did. Man, I'm so sorry you had to go through that. And that's why people don't come forward because they become the pariah. They become the one that's causing problems. They become the liar. They become, I mean, it's... Exactly. That carried with me, that carried with me up and, you know, even up until this point when my mom was murdered and, and Burke said it looked like him. I was just lying and standing, you know, taking up for my husband. We'll be back after a quick break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We'll get to the details of Melinda's mother's murder in a moment. But what's important for you to know now is that this trauma of not being believed had an impact. She would have to endure three more years with that stepfather, but eventually Judy would divorce him. Throughout the rest of Melinda's childhood, She watched her mom, Judy, a victim of domestic violence, toxic masculinity, and gaslighting. And during her tumultuous childhood, Melinda says that she was fiercely protective of her mother. I know that she was severely abused and actually lost her eyesight because of it. She was blind for two years before she had an operation, and they were able to save the eyesight in one eye and not the other. And that's the reason that she wore those really thick, bottle cap glasses because she could not see without them. Did she get hit in the face? Um, She actually got hit in the head and it tore the retinas from her eyes. She got hit in the head by one of her abusive partners so hard, it almost made her blind. It did make her blind. She was completely blind for two years. Did anything ever happen to this guy? No. Did she report it? No. Wow. Wow. And this is important. From a very young age, Melinda felt compelled to save her mother, to protect her mother, even putting herself at risk 
to get between her and these abusive men. That feeling of wanting to save your mom, I think, is so relevant to this investigation because, you know, she was your mom and you had to save her in life and in death and find out who did this to her. I mean, would you I absolutely did. I absolutely did. And this protectiveness extended to her sister, April, too. When Melinda's stepfather came back into the picture, she was older now, 14, and she had something to say to him. She had not seen her father for many, many years. And I think when I was about 14, uh, he wanted to visit her. And so my mom allowed it. And I got to tell you this because it's it's a story. So he came into the house and I would never go into the same room with him, you know, obviously. And one time when he came in, I, you know, I'd always question April when she would come home, like, what did you do? Where did you sleep? You know, things like that. But I finally had enough of worrying about her that I I stepped into that room that he was in and I said, I only have one thing to tell you. And that is, if you ever lay a sexual hand against my sister or hurt her in any way, I'm going to kill you. And I meant it. And what did he do? Never came back after that day to see her. You know, he was, he was a, a fake religious person which he had always been when my mom was with him and you know had the um the whole church behind him and I don't think that he wanted his secret to come out and I think that he was afraid enough of me of telling his secret that somebody would believe it you know and it would he just wanted to take the chance in a young life filled with feelings of powerlessness standing up to her stepfather must have felt so empowering Melinda relished the time that she had with her mother and her sister when it was just the three of them. And then, you know, we found ourselves alone, just the three of us. And so I did a lot of the um, upbringing because my mom would work. And those were some of the best times in my life when when we were alone, you know, and I, I just think that my mom wasn't built to be alone. She wanted, you know, she wanted somebody by her side. And that led to three additional stepfathers. This childhood trauma had built a stamina within her to withstand the storm that was coming her way. She'd never gotten over the feelings of what it had felt like to not be believed when she came forward about her stepfather's sexual abuse, that throughout her young life, she was fiercely protective of those she loved. And the disappointment of people not doing the right thing These things would ultimately fuel Melinda when her mother was murdered and she would be compelled to bring the person responsible to justice. And I always say that those years of of having to go through these uh, different tragedies and crises and it really it led me to be the person that I am today. And I think it also prepared me for what was coming because it seemed like I was able to handle these crises, um, you know, one after the other and still <laughs> and still be able to function. By 1998, Melinda was in her mid-30s. She had married her high school sweetheart when she was 18. They had two boys together, Brandon, who was 12, and Clarence, who was 15. Melinda's little sister, April, who she'd been so fiercely protective of when she was a little baby, now had two kids of her own, six-year-old Brooke and her little brother, Noah. 
Judy, Melinda and April's mom, lived in Barberton, Ohio, about three minutes away from April, but Melinda lived about an hour away. But despite the distance, they were still very close. Now, Barberton, Ohio is a Rust Belt city in the Midwest, a suburb of Cleveland with a population just over 25,000. Barberton is known as a hardworking blue-collar town that had fallen on hard times with the decline of heavy industry. By the late 1990s, Barberton was still trying to reinvent itself in a tough economy. And in 1998, Melinda's mother, Judy, was 58 years old and she was coping with some serious health issues. My mom was on disability. She, um, her housing was subsidized. She didn't have a lot of money. And you know, my mom at 58 years old, my mom looked way, way older than her age. And her body had broken down quite a bit. You know, she had arthritis really bad. She had fibromyalgia. She had, she'd had that, that stroke the year before. A bright spot in Judy's life was her grandchildren. She had a soft spot for her granddaughter, Brooke. Uh, I think Brooke was, you know, my mom just absolutely adored her and loved her company and, you know, helped my mom tremendously. Uh, You know, Brooke was sick, so she could do stuff uh, around the house and whatever. And um, Brooke actually went to school Right, right down the same alley that my mom lived in. My mom could walk down there and pick her up from school. And she loved that. Uh, my mom loved that. So she would have her, you know, pretty much every day after school. And um, I know at one point my mom asked April if she could have Brooke because <laughs> Clarence and I were going to get her a trailer to put on our land and have my mom come live down there because I hated where she lived. I hated it. And I wanted to be, I wanted her to be near me so that I could take care of her. She had had a stroke about a year before she died. And I was worried about her, you know. What's interesting about your description of Brooke's relationship with your mom, it sounds like there's now no men in the picture. And she really had the time to probably spend with Brooke the way she would have wanted to spend with you in April had she not had these tumultuous relationships with men. And, um, you know, it sounds like she was really getting her, she had a really special relationship with Brooke. Um, Yeah. And she loved when my boys went there, she'd always have them do something, you know, which grandmas do. So I look back on it and I look at me as a grandma today and you know, I just, I, I, I just know that she, I think she was very, very uh, lonely and, you know, Brooke kind of filled that void. And yes, I do believe that she, she got to spend some extra special time with Brooke that she didn't get to spend with, with us. On June 6, 1998, it had been a scorcher in Barberton, a beautiful Saturday, and Judy had spent the day with her granddaughter, Brooke. Brooke was over at Judy's often. Her school was nearby, and she loved playing with Judy's neighbor, who had three daughters. They were her best friends. Judy was on disability and lived in subsidized housing on her own in a one-bedroom home, and Brooke would often spend the night. The night of June 6th, Judy and Brooke had watched some television together before Judy put her granddaughter to bed. Brooke went to bed that night, and she'd been wearing one of her grandma's nightgowns that she'd borrowed. And whenever she spent the night, she would always sleep in her grandma's bed, and Judy would sleep on the couch falling asleep to her favorite TV show, Walker, Texas Ranger. She was a huge fan of Chuck Norris. From what I understand, she was watching that show. And, um, 
you want me to tell you everything that happened or? I mean, if you're, if you're up for it, I mean, I don't want you to go to a place that it is upsetting to you, but it's totally up to you how you want to tell what happened. Well, this is from the account that I got. Um, my mom would never leave the door open. So I know that she, her door was closed. So Brooke said that she her, heard some noise and she come out and she saw a guy standing over my mom in the kitchen and dining area. My mom was sitting on at the table and this guy was over her and um, hitting my mom. And then he heard Brooke and Brooke ran into the bedroom Brooke ran back into her grandma's bedroom and hid under the covers. But it wasn't long before the man was in the bedroom, ripping the covers off of Brooke and hitting her in the head so hard she was knocked out. And she said that's when he punched her. And he probably, you know, he probably hit her pretty good that he that she probably went unconscious at that at that point. She would go in and out of consciousness as he beat and sexually assaulted her before leaving her for dead. When Brooke awoke in the early morning hours, she felt a tremendous pain all over her body and she was naked. Despite her injuries, she put her grandma's nightgown back on and she went looking for her grandma. She found her lying on the floor. She saw that she was covered in blood. She tried shaking her grandma awake, who was lying face down on the floor. She couldn't have known then that Judy had been bludgeoned to death and sexually assaulted, viciously murdered. My mom was on the floor and... She tried to wake her up, and she somehow noticed that my mom was gone. Incredibly, six-year-old Brooke, who'd been horribly beaten, knocked unconscious, sexually assaulted, had the presence of mind to try to find the phone to call for help. But Brooke couldn't find the receiver. She had to go outside. She pressed the button on the phone because she couldn't find the receiver, she pressed the button on the phone and the phone was outside in the bushes. So she, when she found the phone, she come in and she made that phone call. April, Brooke's mom, doesn't have a phone at her house. So Brooke calls one of her friends and tragically, no one answered. So she left this message. I'm sorry to tell you this, but my grandma died and I need somebody to get my mom for me. I'm all alone and somebody killed my grandma. Melinda talks about the importance of this message. Instead of calling 911, she called a friend of my mom's and she said, I'm sorry to tell you, which just breaks your heart, that my grandma's dead and someone killed her. Someone. All right. Notice how Melinda says someone. Make a note of that because it's important to the case and we'll get into it later. After Brooke left that voicemail message, she ran next door to the neighbor's house, a place she considered safe. Remember, she played with these little girls, three sisters, all the time that lived there. Brooke banged on the door, frantically. Her face was bruised and swollen. She was crying, wearing her grandmother's bloody pink silk nightgown. She had a vicious-looking head wound. Tanya, the girl's mother, answered the door, but wouldn't let her inside. Even when Brooke, through tears, told her that her grandmother had been murdered and that she'd been attacked. Or her house sat back, um, away from the front house that was there. And then adjacent to that was like a little walkway to the left. And then there was Tanya's door, her steps and her door. So that's where Brooke went. And, you know, make special note that Brooke played with Tanya's little girls all the time. So she goes over there for help. Brooke was told to wait outside, on the porch, 
Danya's children went outside to comfort Brooke, but she was not allowed inside, and the police weren't called. Tanya left her on the steps uh, outside for 45 minutes. Brooke was disheveled, bloody, hurt, obviously. Brooke would say that after 45 minutes of waiting, Tanya would drive her home, which was just a few blocks away. Then she decides to take her to my sister's house, which was like three minutes away drive time. And she tells my sister that she's saying it was her uncle Clarence. That's where it started. Yeah, and I always found a red flag there. I said, something is wrong there. Why wouldn't this woman call the police, call an ambulance, go check on my mom? If she was so scared that, that she wanted to get Brooke out of out of her, her, her yard, why didn't she call the police? Why did the police not follow up on this? You know, <laughs> because they had someone saying, an eyewitness saying who it was. April, Melinda's sister, could clearly see that her daughter had been grievously injured and was in shock. Remember, April didn't have a telephone, so she had her husband go over to Judy's home to check on her mother. And when April's husband arrived, he saw Judy lying on the floor. Her injuries were so brutal that he thought she'd been stabbed to death and said so when he called 911. Meantime, Tanya, Judy's neighbor, told April that Brooke had said that the attacker was Uncle Clarence. Uncle Clarence was Melinda's husband. And my sister could see that she was injured, but she sent her husband over to check on my mom, where he made the 911 call. My sister did not have a phone, so the police uh, were dispatched to my mom's and then to my sister's house. And... (laughs) My sister changed the nightgown and my my niece's panties. She didn't know. I mean, she didn't she didn't have any clue really what was going on. Yeah. And so so a, a patrolman, you know, shows up at my sister's house, and he's like, "Why did you change her? You know, why did you change her clothes?" And so he puts April and Brooke in a patrol car, and then they have to go back to get the clothes. Uh, and then they go to Barberton Hospital and they, you know, immediately know that Brooke needs to go in, into doing, you know, the rape kit and all this stuff. And the whole time that my sister is there, she has no clue what's, what has happened to my mom. None. She kept waiting for my mom to come into the emergency room. We'll be back after a quick break. At the hospital, Brooke was asked to give a description of the perpetrator, and she said it was dark, but he looked like her Uncle Clarence. Given Brooke's internal injuries, she was taken to a children's hospital for surgery in Akron, 15 minutes away from Barberton. April and Judy's mom were brought into a room at the hospital. By that time, uh, my brother-in-law had reached my sister, and they took everybody in a little room, and the detective was in there, and... um, I think they had clergy in there and the doctors, and then they told my my sister and my grandma what had happened. An hour away, it was a regular Sunday morning for Melinda and her family. Melinda was totally unaware that her mother had been murdered and that her niece had been brutalized and left for dead. As I mentioned earlier, Melinda had married her high school sweetheart in the early 1980s at 18 years old. And by 1998, Melinda was working in HR, and her husband Clarence worked at a steel plant as a metal operator. The couple had a 15-year-old son, Clarence II, who was nicknamed Little Clarence, 
and Uncle Clarence was actually referred to by the family as Big Clarence. Melinda and Clarence's youngest son, Brandon, was 12 years old. For the Elkins family, it was a typical Sunday. And by the way, little Clarence at 15 wasn't so little. He was 6'4", and he'd gone outside that morning to get something from the truck. And that's when he noticed a big commotion. He came back in and he said, there's a whole bunch of cops next door. And where we lived was really rural. So next door meant like a couple of acres over, you know. <laughs> and uh, I remember Clarence saying, probably the, there was two twin girls that lived next door and they were just hellions. And they were always getting in trouble. And he said, Carrie and Lori probably got in trouble again. And so my son went back outside and Clarence heard somebody racing up the driveway. So he went out the back door and I see him. We had a big picture window that that you could look out into the back. You know, we had woods and everything. Beautiful scene. But anyway, he's walking across our picture window and he's got his hands up like he was confused. And the next thing I know, there's a deputy sheriff that came to the front door and um, he opens the door and Brandon, my youngest son and myself, were in the living room and he made us come outside. And so we're standing on the on the deck and he's asking me these weird questions. And he asked me if I was Clarence's girlfriend. I said, no, I'm his wife. What are you talking about? And um, he goes... Barberton police got a report that Clarence Elkins' mother-in-law was stabbed in her home. Well, in all the confusion, I'm, I'm like trying to discern what he just said. And then a light bulb went off and I said, my mom? Is my mom okay? And he said, no, she's been murdered. And your niece, the little girl, he said, the little girl is saying that he did it. And I'm like, I mean, I just remember going into a fetal position not down on the ground, but I was kind of, you know, standing up and bent over and I just screamed so loud that I didn't even know it was me screaming. As the SWAT team approached their house, little Clarence had gone outside again. You know, I, I saw all these cops like coming out of the woods and here when Clarence, big Clarence, I call him, <laughs> walked out to the, the back door, they had little Clarence on the ground with uh, guns at his head, and they were um, reading his Miranda rights. Did they think that he was Uncle Clarence? Yeah. And where was Clarence? Where was Big Clarence at this time? Well, he was, um, I think he had walked out out the back door just as they had done that, because um, that's why he had his hands up, like, what's going on? And um, one of the police officers said, oh, that's the wrong one. That's the one we want. They soon realized that this wasn't the Uncle Clarence they were looking for. This was his son, Clarence Jr., and he was released. But that experience would stay with him for the rest of his life. The SWAT team moved on. They set eyes on Big Clarence. And as they took him into custody, they told him that he was a suspect in his mother-in-law's murder. Clarence couldn't believe what was happening. He vehemently denied having anything to do with Judy's murder. Police told him that they had an eyewitness that had put him at the scene, his six-year-old niece, Brooke. I remember I looked at the deputy sheriff and I said, I said, that's crazy. He's been at home. What are you talking about? And then I immediately ran in and I called my grandmother's house. And uh, my uncle, who I'm very close to, answered. And I'm screaming at him, is this true? What, you know, because your mind just can't wrap around this kind of information. It just, it just can't. And... 
he's telling me, yes, it's true. Quit screaming at me. My aunt's in the background saying, don't you come up here. I asked for my grandmother to get on the phone. And I said, you know, I said, grandma, I hope you guys know that he didn't do this. And I don't know, there was some, something that was said. And, and I said, I hope you don't think I had anything to do with this. And my grandmother said, I hope not, Mindy. She's the only mother you had. And so I knew right at that point, I knew that my family believed that Clarence was guilty and that I might have something to do with it. From the very beginning, Melinda wasn't buying it. Of course, Melinda talked to her sister, April, saying, you know, Clarence would never do this. I really have to give my sister credit for saying to me, I have to believe my daughter when she was saying what she was saying. And I give credit to April for that because she knew that nobody believed me growing up saying this stuff. So she said to me, I have to believe my daughter. But she got the context of it messed up because Brooke was saying it looked like my Uncle Clarence, not that it was Uncle Clarence. It looked like him. And she never called my husband Uncle Clarence. She called him Big Clarence. And then my son was little Clarence and my youngest son was little Brandon. She never called him Uncle Clarence ever. So when that statement came out, I knew something was going on. I knew something or someone was putting that in her head. Not so much as it looked like, but later when it became, it was him and using that uncle um, in place of big, I just, I just knew that she was being coerced somewhere. The day after Judy's murder, investigators scoured Clarence's car and home for any physical evidence that would connect him to the crimes. When BCI got to our house, BCI was the Bureau of Criminal Investigations, okay? BCI came in, they tested our drains, they tested, you know, everywhere for blood, no blood in the cars, no blood anywhere. According to Melinda, that Saturday night, Clarence had been with her, and then he'd went out to a local bar with some of his friends and was home at around 2.40. In fact, Melinda was still awake when he walked through the door because their son had been sick with a fever, and she'd stayed up with him all night. And when Clarence returned, he went to bed and stayed in bed until the next morning. But investigators put together their own timeline. They believe that Clarence would have had enough time to get up after he went to bed, drive the hour's distance to Judy's house, commit the crimes, and then drive back home before dawn. And despite not having a shred of physical evidence connecting Clarence to the crimes, prosecutors move forward with charging him for the rape and murder of Judy Johnson and the sexual assault and attempted murder of Brooke. Clarence had no history of violence, and he had no reason to want to hurt his mother-in-law or his niece. Melinda says she was stunned when people started coming out of the woodwork, saying that he had issues with his mother-in-law, that there'd been arguments, that Clarence actually hated Judy because he felt that she was getting in the way of his relationship with Melinda. During the trial, these witnesses came forward. The case rested on the eyewitness testimony of a six-year-old little girl who had a head injury, who had been severely traumatized, who went from saying on a voicemail that somebody had murdered her grandmother to saying the man looked like her Uncle Clarence. And during the trial, when Brooke took the stand, her account was heartbreaking. The gruesome nature of the crimes, the sheer heartless brutality, what she'd been through. 
what her grandmother had been through. And when she was asked to point out in the courtroom who did this to her and who hurt her grandmother, she pointed to Clarence Elkins. And by this time, she said, Uncle Clarence did it. Melinda was put on the stand as her husband's alibi. Melinda says she will never forget how the prosecutor made her feel like the biggest liar and, as she said, some dumb country hick that was standing by her man. This accusation harkened back when she hadn't been believed before. My mom was murdered and Burke said it looked like him. I was just lying and standing, taking up for my husband. It's so maddening to me. So maddening. They viewed me as a liar, you know, even from the time I was seven, you know, till I'm 37. And when it came out that my niece said it looked like her Uncle Clarence that murdered my mother and attacked her, my six-year-old niece, the night of my mother's murder, I wasn't buying it. I was, my family knew that I was rejecting that. And I was saying, no, Clarence did not do that. So they again, once, you know, they again viewed me as a liar, you might as well say. The jury would deliberate for 13 hours, and on June 4th, 1999, they reached a verdict. Clarence Elkins was convicted of first-degree murder and rape of his mother-in-law, Judy Johnson, and guilty of the sexual assault and attempted murder of Brooke. He was sentenced to 55 years in prison. Judy was devastated, and she remembers turning around to her sister April in court and saying, You know he didn't do this. According to Melinda, after the sentencing, the prosecutor said to her, well, you're not going to see your husband for at least 54 years. And Melinda replied, you want to bet? Well, on June 12, 1998, my mom was buried and I made a vow to her that I was going to find out who did this. I mean, I come hell or high water, I'm going to find out who did this. And You know, that went into also getting Clarence out of prison. I mean, he didn't deserve to be in prison. But at the end of the day, Melinda went home alone with her two sons. Clarence had been branded a child molester, the worst label you can have in prison. And Melinda had felt abandoned by her own family, who believed that her husband, Clarence, was the killer and that she was standing by her man. The toll that it was taking on their children was heart-wrenching. I mean, I got to tell you, the times that we'd go in and visit him and he couldn't come home with us was, I can't even find words for it. It, it, it was horrific. It was tragic. And it, it left its mark. You know, when, when we'd have to drive sometimes five, six hours away to go visit him and, and the hell that I went through to get through to see him, they always made it hard on me, always, and humiliated me. And, you know, the boys, that's their dad. We have to go to prison to see his dad. And, you know, he, he'd try to make things upbeat and he'd talk to the boys and joke with the boys. And, and you know, I'm mad as hell. And I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm there to see him and I'm happy to see him. But under the circumstances, I would just bawl like a baby when I would come out of there, you know. And then we, we'd drive five or six hours to go see him. And then you have like a four-hour visitation. And then you have to drive back home. I mean, it was exhausting. Not only exhausting to drive, but emotionally. I mean, I just wanted to pick him up and take him with us. I mean, this just didn't seem right. Like, you know, and you'd see the other prisoners and their families and they'd be laughing and joking. And I I just, I just thought this is too tragic. I Because you knew he was innocent. Yes. Next time on part two of The Eye of the Storm, 
With police convinced that Clarence was the killer, Melinda was on her own. But instead of giving in to despair, she would launch her own investigation to free her husband and find out who the real perpetrator was. Melinda created a suspect list based on people near her mother's orbit who had a violent past in Barberton or someone who could have been a threat to Judy. You know, you have to put your mind in a place that you've never been before. And that is, I gotta track people down. Like first I, I have to find people who fit that kind of criteria, you know? And so a lot of those people that were initially on my list were people that were from around that area, knew my mom through my sister and her husband. And so I would look up if they had any arrests for violence, in sexual nature, anything like that. And then if they did, they became a suspect of mine. But putting pen to paper with the names of men who had violent pasts wasn't enough. She needed to go get a sample of their DNA because Melinda knew that there was unknown male DNA that had been collected from the crime scene. And I'd, I'd find them in a bar and, you know, I'd either get a cigarette butt or I would take their... Um, beer bottle that they were drinking from, their beer bottle or their beer glass, and, you know, put it away and kind of excuse myself out of the situation and leave in a hurry, you know? Oh, Lord. Didn't you say that you yanked one of the hairs out of one of their heads? Yeah. Yeah. Find out next week on The Murder Chronicles how all Melinda's hard work would pay off. The Murder Chronicles is a pie-in-the-sky production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We are produced by Brandon Morgan and myself, music by Soundstripe. For Pie in the Sky Media, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.